When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the 50 Years Ago on Hockey podcast, and this is episode number 124 in our weekly series. I'm your host, Rick Cole. Every week, right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take a trip down memory lane back in time 50 years, and we bring you all the hockey news from that period, exactly as it was reported by some of the greatest sports writers of all time. In this episode, we're looking at the week of March 27th to April 2nd, 1972, which happened to be the final week of the 1971-72 National Hockey League season. If you like what we do here every week on uh, the Hockey Podcast Network, and uh, when we get back, we'll be on Twitter again very soon, we hope uh, you can help us out a lot by going to patreon.com slash hockey50years and subscribe to the podcast. Our subscribers get early access to each week's free podcast, but that's not all. We have special episodes. We call them overtime episodes, uh, where there's a lot more uh, in-depth content content. We get to examine the issues of the day 50 years ago in a lot more detail and give you greater detail uh, and greater context, I guess, to the stories from back then. Probably some in, uh, information you likely wouldn't find anywhere else. So that's patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe. And we thank you for your help, those of you who do subscribe. So we are in the final week of the 71-72 NHL season and it's going to go right down to the final night in the Western Division and the penultimate evening in the East. As the week began, the standings looked like this. The Bruins, Holman cooled out in first place with 117 points, a nine-point bulge over the Rangers with a game in hand, by the way, with three games left for most teams and four for the Bruins. Rangers, as we said, in second at 108. Canadians comfortably ensconced in third place, 103, based on their 44-16-15 record. The battle was for fourth in the East, where the Maple Leafs, going into the week, held a three-point lead over the Red Wings, and it looked like they were going to be able to hang on for fourth place, but would they? Detroit had some tough games coming up this week, but so did the Leafs. Last in the East, Buffalo looked like they were going to take Vancouver, leading by four points, 49-45, to but the Canucks had two games in hands over the Sabres, who only had two games left to play. They could tie it, but it was doubtful that they would win both and Buffalo would or win four and Buffalo would lose two. Wasn't going to happen, put it that way. 
In the West, Chicago, way ahead, 102 points on a 44-17-14 record, which would have been, by the way, no better than fourth in the East. Minnesota, 19 points back at 83. And then the battle for third, fourth, and fifth between St. Louis, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and the California Golden Seals. The Flyers... Going into the week, 62 points, the Penguins 61, the Seals 60, the Blues, of course, was 65, didn't need uh, much to clinch third place, which they would eventually do. So, here's the way it was shaping up and going out for the week. Tuesday evening, things got a little closer in the east. The Red Wings had a game against the Bruins who admittedly weren't taking any risk at this point. And the Wings came from a 3-1 deficit at the end of the first period to actually double the score in the Bruins, 6-3. The game was won on third period markers by Leon Rochefort, Arnie Brown, Nick Libet, and Mickey Redmond. And the Red Wings suddenly were within one point of the, the fourth place Maple Leafs. Also Tuesday night, the Blues clinched that third place finish by edging the Vancouver Canucks 2-1. And it was all thanks to Gary Unger, who scored both of the Blues goals to top the Canucks and clinch third for St. Louis. There were a lot of paranoid Toronto fans who felt that the Bruins simply rolled over and died for the Red Wings on Tuesday as part of some bizarre plot that would enable the Red Wings to slide into the playoffs and the Leafs to miss. Well, the Red the Leafs fans really needn't have worried about that because on Wednesday night, the Bruins didn't look any better against Toronto. The Leafs took them down 4-1, setting up a situation where the Toronto Club needed only one point out of their weekend games against New York and Boston, neither of whom admittedly, again, had really anything to fight for. The Leafs did get that point on Saturday night, edging the Rangers 2-1 at Maple Leaf Gardens. And as the uh, schedule was winding down, a little bit of troubling news out of Boston. Both Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito were sending out the Bruins' final few games because of what some people were saying were alleged injuries. Well, word came out, Milt Dunnell of the Toronto Star uncovered it, that Bobby Orr had been sent back to Boston to have his knee examined by the Bruins' team doctors, and it was... uh, sort of not revealed but Dunnell came to find out that Orr was going to have to have knee surgery immediately after the playoffs on that left knee again and looking back what we know now from history this was not good news for the Bruins but worse of course for Bobby Orr. Wednesday of this week saw another kind of unusual incident in the NHL. This uh, after a game between the Chicago Blackhawks and the Montreal Canadiens at Chicago Stadium. Red Fisher of the Montreal Star had this uh, report. Well, we won't give you the whole story, but Red had this introduction to his report that night. Anybody looking for some interesting reading, try getting a copy of Dutch Van Dielen's game report to Clarence Campbell from that 5-5 Chicago-Montreal tie 
Red Fisher says it could reach the bestseller list. Dutch Van Dielen is one of the NHL employees whose responsibility it is to report to his boss about the events taking place during a game, like the game between Montreal and Chicago, but a couple of paragraphs at least are going to have to be devoted to a wordy one shove bout after the game involving, of all people, coaches Scotty Bowman and Billy Ray. The shove took place after the two coaches had leveled some purple language at each other in the seconds after the game had ended largely because Bowman had complained to Van Dielen about the roughhouse tactics of one Jerry Korab, a mountain-sized left winger and sometimes defenseman with the Hawks. Ray apparently didn't appreciate the idea of Bowman putting down his man, so one word led to another. Another, several more words led to several more. The hands waved, the fingers pointed, and the color rose in their faces. And then, would you believe it? Billy Ray pushed or shoved, laid a mighty blow on Scotty Bowman. No damage, of course, was inflicted. The pair went their separate ways, nonplussed about the whole thing. And it's not even likely the league will even look at this. Uh, really blown out of proportion confrontation between two very fiercely proud NHL coaches. In the Western Division, the uh, Penguins really worked hard to get past the Seals 5-4 to four out in Oakland, and that eliminated California, sorry, that was in Pittsburgh. That eliminated California from the final playoff spot. So the Seals were out the Red Wings, as we would find out later in the weekend, would be out. And all the raving we put up with through the regular season from sports writers who live only in the moment about the genius of GM's Ned Harkness of Detroit and Gary Young of the Seals went by the wayside as both those clubs were on the outside looking in. And the most of us who paid a lot of attention we weren't surprised by either of those developments. So, in the West, it all came down to the final night. On Saturday, the Penguins managed a 4-4 tie with Philadelphia at the Spectrum, and that's what kind of said, okay, we got a chance to the Pens. It would come down, as we said, to that final evening. Now, the Penguins had to go out and beat the Blues while hoping, praying that the lowly Buffalo Sabres could come through with an upset over the Flyers. That seemed to be an unlikely scenario for Coach Red Kelly, but there was a couple things that you had to think about. The Sabres had a good young team coming up and loved playing the spoiler. The Blues playing the Flyers, or playing the Penguins, really didn't have anything, and they weren't having anything to fight for. They were clinched in third, and it looked like this Pittsburgh playoff position might actually could become a reality. 
Well, Jerry Meehan of the Sabres slammed a 30-footer past Philadelphia goalie Doug Favelle with just four seconds left at Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo to give the Sabres a 3-2 victory and end the Flyers' hopes for the fourth and final playoff spot in the Western Division. The Flyers, as we said, had needed only a tie against the Sabres to clinch the playoff spot. They finished with 66 points, the same number as the Penguins, but the Penguins took the season series 3-2-1 and to gain the last playoff spot. Now, how did that happen? The Penguins hammered the St. Louis Blues 6-2 to earn that final spot. Now, Rennie Robert had scored a power play goal midway through the final period as the Sabres tied the game 2-2. The Flyers looked like they were have the game well in hand when they uh, jumped off to a 2-0 lead in the first period. Bobby Clark, Rick Foley uh, got those goals. But Gilbert Perrault scored Buffalo's first goal uh, just past the midway mark of the second period. That set up the dramatics by Robert and Nian and put the Flyers out of the playoffs for 1972. But stay tuned, fans, for the next couple of seasons because you're not going to see the Flyers miss the playoffs very much in the next few years. The week uh, off the ice began with an announcement from the Toronto Maple Leafs that coach John McClellan would not return this season. After trying to return to coach the team in Friday night in Vancouver, Leafs, by the way, lost 5-3, which could have been a costly loss, Mack went to general manager Jim Gregory and advised him that he was not strong enough to continue. There were stories around the league that the Leafs had fired McClellan. That was not the case. McClellan told Gregory he was not well and could not coach anymore. Well, Gregory went right to King Clancy and the Leafs doctors. Clancy had been the interim coach and had done a fine job with the Leafs. And after consultation with the team physicians and the King, it was determined that Clancy, who is 69 years old, was certainly healthy enough to take over once again and to finish the season and hopefully the playoffs behind the Toronto bench. Later in the week, the Leafs would confirm that Johnny McClellan would not return for the 1972-73 season, and that again was a wise choice by John, whose family played a large part in his decision. Immediately, speculation began as to who would be the new Leaf bench boss, and the consensus around the NHL was that the Leafs would offer the position to former NHL star, played for the Leafs as well as Canadians and Blackhawks, Burt Olmsted. Memo to the Leafs players, if you think it was rough under Punch Imlac, you ain't going to like what Burt Olmsted brings. A former Leaf? Maybe there are other former Leafs out there who could end up in Toronto. We'd have to see about that one. Another incident between fans and players in the NHL last weekend, this time on Sunday night in the Rangers North Stars. Goalie Cesar Maniego, the North Stars, uh, was 
jumped, basically, as the teams left the ice at the end of a Rangers 5 nothing loss to Minnesota on Sunday. Maniego had stated that Anthony Moulton, 27 of Manhattan, had jumped on top of him and forcibly, forcibly removed his sweater as the team filed off the ice at Maple Leaf Garden. Moulton, Big guy, 6'2", 220, appeared in court with a swollen right eye and other minor facial bruises. Manny Ajo said that actually what was happening was Moulton was going after another Minnesota player and lunged at him but missed and ended up on the Minnesota goalkeeper, interestingly enough. Well, the... Uh, Security guards got in. There was about a, a free-for-all. There was about 10 North Star players involved in the whole thing. And it uh, turned out that uh, when it got to court, Maniego, the security guard, and everyone else dropped the assault charges. Maniego shook hands with Mr. Moulton. He said, let bygones be bygones. And the charges were dropped. And that was that. There has been a lot of publicity around the hockey world about the World Hockey Association signing European players, but there was news this week. The NHL was not going to lag behind the new league. Two of Sweden's best hockey players said this week they will sign with the National Hockey League Buffalo Sabres after the World Championship Tournament in Prague in April. The two are uh, uh, goalie Krister and defenseman Tommy Abramson, twins, brothers, Swedish twins, imagine that, playing hockey. Hmm. They said that they are going to... uh, signed with the Sabres. They're veterans of the Swedish national team, both 25 years old. The transfer deals, according to Tommy Abramson, have not yet been worked out. Tommy said, we want to sign on for one season, but the Sabres, coached by Punch Imlach, want us for a three-year stretch. So far, there's only been one Swedish player who's played regularly in the NHL, and that was Ulf Sterner, who played for the New York Rangers in the 1960s. A story about the Stanley Cup playoffs about to begin, and the players have a little more to play for this year. In fact, hockey moved a step closer to parity with professional football and baseball in the matter of their playoff awards. When the NHL announced that each player on this year's Stanley Cup winning team will receive a whopping $15,000 just for playing in the playoffs. This amount is in addition to the award money earned for teams finishing the regular season standings. 2500 per player for first, 1250 for second, 750 for third, and 500 for fourth. The league now will distribute a total of $966,000 of playoff and regular season championship Awards. The new package, announced by League President Clarence Campbell, shows $756,000 set aside for playoff award money and 210000 for the order of finish 
in the regular season standings. By comparison, members of the winning team in Pro Football's annual Super Bowl each receive twenty-five grand, while each member of the Pittsburgh Pirates received about $20,000 for their win in the 1971 World Series. With the new uh, expansion teams in New York and Atlanta starting play this fall and the World Hockey Association commencing its uh, regular season this fall as well, the general manager of the New York Islanders is worried about the WHA rating his players, players he doesn't even have yet. Tory said he expects to ask the NHL to provide the Long Island-based Islanders and the New Atlanta Flame, as yet unnamed, with some form of protection against rating by the new league. Tory said theoretically the entire 19 players and two goalkeepers drafted by an expansion team in June could decide to join the WHA, leaving the new teams with absolutely nothing for their money. Bill has two suggestions for the NHL, and he plans to discuss them with team owner Roy Bow. He says, one, the NHL should provide for a thorough check before the expansion draft of the hockey intentions of all the players made available by the 14 present teams and the two, that provision be made for the replacement of drafted players who go to the WHA. Now, there's a couple of problems with this that I I saw right away. Number one, a player has the right to decide when he wants to sign a contract. And if he doesn't want to sign before the expansion draft, there ain't nothing that the NHL is going to be able to do about it. Number two, can you imagine if the guarantee is made that if players leave, then they're going to guarantee replacements? Would they take them from the players that were already protected or would they get them from even lower in the minors? The Islanders and the Atlanta team could actually end up getting better player than they drafted if they say, well, we're going to have to make a few more protected players available. This is really opening up a can of worms, but I can't blame Bill Torrey one bit. He's got to do everything he can because he knows that he's not going to have much on the island in those first few years. By the way, the that expansion draft, in case you're wondering how that's going to work, the uh, regular NHL clubs will protect 15 skaters and two goalkeepers, and picks will remain on a claim and fill basis, meaning that when a team loses a player, it may protect another. If the Maple Leafs were to, for some reason, expose a fellow like uh, Rick Lee, for example, he could be chosen by the Islanders. The Leafs would then be able to bring another unprotected player onto their roster. That leaves the Islanders in Atlanta, the number 16, the number 18, and the number 20 players on each team. Doesn't sound like they'll be very competitive. Now add that to the fact that first-year pros like Rick Martin of Buffalo, Gene Carr of the Rangers, Josh Gavermont of Vancouver, Marcel Dion of Detroit and Guy Lafleur of Montreal, they are exempt from the expansion draft. They don't even have to be protected. Sam Pollock drew up these rules, I believe. He must have. 
There was a bit of WHA news as well this week, a kind of a crystallization week for the World Hockey Association in that some of their plans probably became a little more clear as to how things were shaping up for the new league. Well, the city commissioners of Edmonton, Alberta, will be reporting soon on uh, a discussion with the Edmonton Exhibition Association and private developers on an NHL standard hockey arena for the city of Edmonton. Chief Commissioner Dr. Peter Bargan told Edmonton City Council that the commission board has been exploring the concept of an NHL standard arena with both the exhibition board and the private developers. And uh, at a meeting on Monday, council referred to the commissioners a motion by Alderman Ed Leger asking that the commissioners be directed to approach the exhibition board to consider ways and means and the cost to build a hockey coliseum containing about 16,000 seats near the exhibition grounds. Alderman Ron Hader wanted the motion amended to have the hockey arena built downtown with trade and convention facilities, but the referral came before his amendment had been put to a vote. So they're moving ahead with plans to at least see if they can get an NHL arena in Edmonton. Whether they'll get a team or not remains to be seen, but they will be in the second major league this fall. That is uh, pretty well guaranteed. So while it looks they're going to get an arena in Edmonton, another WHA city may be not so lucky. The question of whether the Miami Screaming Eagles would have a home in 1972 was complicated by the disclosure that a suit had been filed against Herb Martin, the managing general partner of the World Hockey Association franchise, to prevent him from continuing work on the Executive Square Gardens Arena, which is under partial construction, and that's being generous with the word partial, off the Palmetto Expressway just west of the Miami airport. The suit was filed by Jacksonville attorney Hugh Culverhouse, president of the Miami International Merchandise Mart, which is managed by Martin and his partner, Jerome Friedman. Those two, of course, are the principals in the World Hockey Association franchise. The suit, which was to be heard over the coming days uh, in circuit court in Miami, uh, claims that Martin's and Friedman's arena plans violate their management contract by attempting to compete with the Mart. Martin has not filed a response to the charges. He wasn't available for comment. And a drive around the arena site shows only two of four walls for the building up and absolutely no sign of some kind of a rink or even seating capacity. A bit about the World Hockey Association Chicago Cougars this week. The Cougar entry in the new World Hockey Association was expected to unveil Ed Short as their general manager. Now, if you're a sports fan, you may have heard of Ed Short. He was the general manager of the Chicago White Sox of the American League and Major League Baseball. Yeah, he was a baseball general manager. Second 
Major League Baseball general manager to become involved in the WHA, Marvin Milks, of course, in the New York Raiders. The announcements concern the appointment this week, short as uh, general manager, uh, a new ownership group headed by John Ladner, a Chicago attorney, and this is being reported by Bob Verde of the Chicago Tribune. This, by the way, did come to pass. Uh, John Syke, president of the original ownership group, was quoted by Bob Verde as saying, we have met all the WHA financial requirements and deadlines up to date, but I couldn't see ourselves making it down the road. We decided to bring in someone with some fresh cash. Another note for the Chicago Cougars, it looks like they're going to play their games in Chicago's International Amphitheater. Not a really great rink from the initial reports. The NHL season has been packed with dirty dangles, hat tricks, and big wins as the action rolls on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the National Hockey League, has your shot to win big too. New customers can bet just $1 on any team and get $150 in free bets if their team wins. That, that's right. A bump in the win column for your team means free bets for you. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you still have a shot to light the lamp. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Hockey Contest. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app right now. Use promo code THPN. That's THPN for the Hockey Podcast Network. Bet just $1 on any NHL team and get $150 in free bets if your team wins. That's promo code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL. Must be 21 years or older. Some restrictions do apply and see our show notes for details. So while things were being solidified in Edmonton and looking more solid in Chicago, that was not the case in Dayton. I think I've talked about this before. I remember when they announced the original WHA franchise. I saw Dayton, Ohio, and I said, Dayton the what? Dayton, Ohio is a major league team. I was very aware of Dayton's fine history and uh, good crowds they were getting in the uh, International Hockey League. But even that, the IHL was considered semi-pro at that time. Well, started out on Wednesday. Rumors were flying around a t town, around Dayton, to the effect that the franchise was uh, not off to a flying start. And it was all but shot down because it was going to be an American Hockey League franchise in Dayton, 72-73. Reports persisted that Paul Deneau, the local architect developer and president of the Dayton Hockey Club Incorporated, was pulling out of the World Hockey Association picture. Now, neither Deneau nor James Smith, the attorney for the Dayton WHA team, could be reached on Wednesday for comment, 
but the no reportedly had told uh, intimates that he wanted out after failing to come up with the added money needed for the venture. He had purchased the $50,000 stock from the Dayton Newspapers Incorporated, which severed its interest in the local picture a week or so ago. Dayton had sought to replace a, st- a stock subscription for another two hundred grand, but that was rescinded when the Dayton newspapers withdrew. Well, by Thursday, Dayton's World Hockey Association dream was officially dead. D-dub- this was came from the Associated Press in a move designed to beat the NHL to the state of Texas and its large market. The World Hockey Association decided to move the Dayton franchise to Houston, Texas. The switch would give the baby WHA two southwestern franchises in Los Angeles and Houston. One of the major reasons for the shift was the WHA's inability to obtain control over Dayton's International League team, the GEM. The Ohio City is considered too small to support two professional hockey teams, let alone one major league team. Houston has a population of 1.2 million, and the team, which will be called the Arrows, will be housed in the 9,200-seat Houston Coliseum. We didn't tell you about another California team in the WHA. It used to be San Francisco. That's because you may remember a few weeks ago that San Francisco franchise was moved unceremoniously to the province of Quebec in Quebec City. Well, last week we had uh, news that John Ferguson, the uh, former policeman of the Montreal Canadiens, was interested in putting some money into that franchise and becoming a part owner. Well, the Quebec franchise gained a name this week, but it lost a high-profile investor and the first choice from GM all on the same day. The owners of the team decided they will call the Quebec club the Nordiques. That was the name selected by a committee from a list of 475 different ideas submitted in both official Canadian languages. We don't have a list of some of those that got turned down, but with 475, I'll bet there were some doozies. But this week, also, Mark Cloutier was the first choice for general manager by the owners, and he said he had declined the offer of the GM's job, and he also said that his buddy John Ferguson had decided not to buy into the new franchise. So the Nordiques apparently are going to be a real thing, but they're going to go with the uh, large group of folks that put up the money. They're going to play in La Colise, but they won't have the high-profile ownership of John Ferguson to help promote that team. A couple of more WHA notes to uh, round out that uh, league's uh, news this week. Uh, And this sort of is a hybrid between the NHL and the WHA. Uh, Canucks general manager Bud Poyle says he's not firing Hal Laco, but he hasn't decided whether he will rehire him next year. But he did say he had not approached Bert Olmsted, mentioned as being a new Leafs coach, to coach the Canucks next year. If Laco does get bounced by the Canucks, folks out of the Edmonton Journal are saying that he will be the first coach of 
the Edmonton Oil Kings WHA team. Now, the WHA uh, Playing Activities Committee is going to meet in Edmonton this week as well. The committee was to attempt to decide the rules and playoff structure for the new league. The chairman of the committee is Bill Hunter of Edmonton. The other members are Calgary's Scotty Monroe, Jack Kelly of, of New England, Buck Hool and Doug Michelle from Ottawa, Joe Levin of Minnesota, Bill Deneen of Houston, Terry Slater, coach of the Los Angeles team, and the referee-in-chief, Vern Buffy. If you uh, heard us last week, you, we told you about a bizarre situation in the Ontario Hockey, Hockey Association Junior A Series where the St. Catharines Blackhawks lost all three of their goalkeepers. Well, it's either feast or famine in, in St. Catharines these days as far as goalies have returned. With one game left in their OHA schedule, the three reticent Hawk goalkeepers, Brian Kuzno, Mike Ralph, and Gord Black, had quit the team. And guess what? All three returned after the Hawks had already gained permission to use midget goalie Bill Chiropoda and juvenile goalie Jim Hopgood, both guys I've, I've met. Very interesting. After last week's story, we got a comment from Gord Black who said that returning and going back was probably one of the best things he ever did. Pretty interesting. I hope to uh, talk to Gord a little bit more about that. It was pretty uh, interesting. The Hawks now have goalies coming out of their ears. Kuzno, Ralph, and Black con uh, reconsidered their previous decision to leave the club and uh, coach Frank Milne reinstated them so that now there's five goalies who could start the Memorial Cup playoffs for the St. Catharines Blackhawks. That little kid out of Brantford continues to make news. Wayne Gretzky, the diminutive scoring dynamo from the Telephone City, continues to battle opposition goalkeepers at the Golden Horseshoe Invitational Hockey Tournament. This is from the Canadian Press. The four foot four, seventy pounder who rotates between defense and center, depending on how the game is going, scored nine goals and assisted on his team's other three goals as Brantford, little town of Brantford, drubbed London, Ontario, 12-1 to in novice div division action. The scoring output for the 10-year-old Gretzky bought his season's production to 343 goals, 124 assists, 467 points, and only 75 scheduled and exhibition games. Novices playing 75 games in a season, but 343, that, that's just incredible. Well, you know, for years, we, we listened to Don Cherry rave or rant or whatever you want to call it about how clothes make the man for a hockey player. They don't, but you know what? That, that, that was... Uh, it, looking like a professional, there's something to be said for that. Well, this was nothing new. This is from 1972 from the Canadian Magazine, and we're going to uh, go a little longer on this feature about hockey's smartest-looking players, an article by a fellow by name of Tom Alderman. About this time every hockey season, we get the usual welter of NHL All-Star polls conducted by fans, officials, sports writers, and anyone else who thinks he knows the difference between a slap shot 
and a backhand pass. And what did they all wind up with? The same old names. Or Hull, Esposito. You could almost rhyme them off from memory. Most of us could do that. But why was all this talk about who looks good and who doesn't, quote, look good when it's well known to anyone other than hockey enthusiasts that all hockey players look pretty much the same out there on the ice, especially now with helmets and stuff. In short, they all look ridiculous. The hockey uniform may be safe and practical, but you have to admit it's a design disaster of sports. How can it even compare with the sensual outlines of the footballer or the baseball player's casual jauntiness? It's a wonder any player wearing that uniform day after day has any taste left for street clothes. Indeed, most hockey players dress like they're just in from nowhere, but there are some who rise above their environment, and it is these whom we honor on our first NHL All-Star squad. Forget who looks good on the ice. Our All-Star squad, it's how you look off the ice that counts, and our scouts were hanging around the dressing rooms for outside information. And now we present the fruit of their labors, the Canadian magazines, NHL all-star dudes. Dale Talon doesn't know how much he spends each year on clothes and he's afraid to find out. All he, all I know, he says, is that clothes are my biggest single expense. And that's the impression you get when you glance around his 14th floor apartment overlooking English Bay in Vancouver. Three closets, jammed with clothes, 12 suits and three more coming, five blazers, 30 pairs of slacks, 21 pairs of shoes, 10 top coats and overcoats, assorted golf outfits and shirts and jeans, including orange velvet, and assorted other wondrous garments. Some tailor is becoming very rich off Dale Talon. Talon doesn't shop locally. Vancouver, he says, is a depressing place to shop unless you want just shirts or jeans. Most of his threads are made to measure at Lou Miles in Toronto, where he was first led a few years ago by Bobby Orr. Talon was then playing for the Toronto Marlies. That or, says Talon, he's cost me a lot of money. It's 200 to 250 a pop at Miles Place, and Talon buys two or three at a time whenever he drops into town. He gets a deal there because of his high volume. Now, for our second uh, member of the team, no fear, no favor. Even a man with an $1,800 broadtail maxicoat can make our all-star dandy squad. Besides, the NHL is woefully weak and stylish. Left wingers Vic Hadfield's only competition was Jerry Pinder of the Seals, and the word is that Pinder's been making some debatable purchases since Chicago traded him to California last year. Strange things happen to ordinarily sound dressers when they get too much of that California sun. Hadfield's your classic size 42 long, so he can get most of his rags right off the rack. He shops at the Cricket Shop in Cedarhurst, a small town outside New York, and at Garvey and Wilmot in his hometown of Oakville, just west of Toronto. Because he looks so good in their clothes, he's got an arrangement with both places to Model their stuff for newspaper ads. Part of the deal is that he gets all his clothes 
for about half price. Now, Vic does a lot of other modeling as well, more so this year because he's having such a good season on the ice. That's how he picked up his broadtail coat. After modeling it on TV, the maker gave it to him for half price. You think I'd pay 1800 for a coat, says Vic? I'm not mad. 900 bucks is more like it. 900 bucks for a coat in 1972 was an awful lot of money to this kid. Hadfield's foot size is 10C. You'll note that people who care about these things know their sizes precisely. A lot of us might know our size is 10, but how many bother to find out about the C-Wit? His 10Cs are usually encased in valleys, which he gets like any other player who wants to take advantage of the offer for 40% off from the firm's warehouse in New York. Every all-star team, of course, has to have a goalkeeper. This particularly interested me, an old goalkeeper myself. Well, the bedroom closet is jammed with clothes, Doug Favell's clothes, except for one teensy corner where his wife Carolyn has a few dresses stashed. It's all Doug. And I was lucky to get that much room, says Carolyn Favell. Doug's very nice. He even gave me one of the dresser drawers for my other stuff. That dresser has five drawers. I got two weaknesses, says Favell. Cards and clothes. And nobody mentioned the five hole there. Uh, the clothes, he says, cost me more than the cards. Goalies are the worst dressed hockey players. There's something about the build demanded of today's goalies that precludes any sense of sartorial Flair. But then there's Favelle, the first player in the NHL to wear a fur coat in public, apparently. Obviously fearless, he prefers the California styles in Dorman Winthrop, a ritzy Beverly Hills men's shop he drops into whenever the Flyos visit Los Angeles. These, Favelle's boys, buys his suits off the rack for a hundred to two hundred bucks each, though he'll occasionally pop for two fifty for a custom tailored job. Doug's a shirt freak, a shirt freak, and he has about 40 of them. I'm afraid to send them out for milk, says Carolyn. He always comes back with two or three shirts, and then he forgets the milk. At the moment, however, Favelle's pride is a white sheepskin coat he picked up on sale for 150 bucks, regularly 250 at Wanamaker's in Philadelphia. Favell says nobody else wanted it. Can you blame them? It's white, man, and it picks up the least little bit of dirt. Another defenseman makes the team. He is known as the National Hockey League Turtleneck King, and he has about 20 of them. That's J.C. Tremblay of the Montreal Canadiens, who has uh, about 20 turtleneck sweaters in various solid colors. Uh, Trombley says, I really don't think I'm that hot a dresser. He admits, however, he's come a long way since his rookie season of 1960-61. Most of the Canadians went to Tony the Tailor back then. Tony used to give them a deal. His then, his price was $35 for a made-to-measure suit, but it went up to 65 and J.C. Trombley switched JC's a careful shopper. He prefers to buy where there's a deal going. Right now, there's one going on at Burt Mar Close, a large Montreal wholesale manufacturing house where hockey players 
usually can get their threads custom tailored at half the regular price. JC rarely pays more than a hundred bucks. He reciprocates with the odd free tickets to home games. His haberdashery comes from any other place around town where hockey players are welcome, meaning where the deals are special for the prestige of staying. JC shops at our place. And our final member of the uh, the dudes team is a fella I've always liked since I watched him play junior hockey in Hamilton, and that is one Pitt Martin. Strength down the center. Any hockey man can tell you it's an essential of any well-balanced team. And so we present Pitt Martin as our choice among a clutch of peacocks that include Davey Keon, Gary Unger, and Stan Makita. It was obvious, even while Martin was a boy in Noranda, Quebec, that he was headed for stardom. His mother made all his clothes. Ma, I can't wear that to school, Pitt used to complain, but wear it he would, no matter how unusual, and he accept the compliments of his schoolmates. He's been turned off by production line threads ever since. Now instead of mother, there's Maury the salesman at Morrison Sons in, in Chicago. Pitt has been going there for about three years. I walk in the door, says Pitt, and Maury says, have I got the thing for you? I take a look at it and says, there's no way I'll buy that. But once Maury gets the thing on me, I kind of get to liking it. Maury gets Pitt into some bizarre color combinations, many of which turn up each summer at the Beach Grove Golf and Country Club near Windsor, Ontario. We're dressed crazy out there, says Pitt, and I always try to outdo everyone else. Pitt keeps about a dozen outfits going at a time, rarely keeping any of them more than two years. He pays about 150 bucks for a suit right off the rack or a jacket slacks combination that would cost anybody else about 250. I never pay more than 150, Pitt says. Fashion changes so fast you don't get to wear anything for more than two years. And that is our National Hockey League Dude All-Stars. Uh, we have a few more newsy items to close down this week's show and to close down the 1971-72 regular NHL season. In the uh, Chicago Blackhawks final game of the season, Bobby Hull scored his 49th and 50th goals of the year. That was the uh, fifth time that Hull has surpassed or reached the 50-goal plateau. That's quite an accomplishment. Of course, one of the big things in Canada is watching the Stanley Cup playoffs as they're set to begin, and the TV picture was not clear for Canadians as the uh, playoffs were about to start. Channel 9 viewers in Toronto and those watching other CBT outlets in southern Ontario would get to see the Maple Leafs playing the Bruins as the playoffs switched to the CB's CTV network because of the uh, NABET st uh, strike uh, that the CBC management was trying to uh, somehow resolve. But with talk of the CBC trying to break the union, it didn't look like that was going to happen. So although we had the first few games kind of knowing where they're going to be, the rest of the playoffs was still up in the air. Fans watching those Maple Leaf playoff games were going to see uh, some interesting changes on the team, not in personnel, but in actually the look. Promising mustaches on Denny Duperry and Jim McKenney of the Leafs suddenly disappeared this week 
after General Manager Jim Gregory spoke briefly and amiably with both players following their arrival for the playoff games in Boston. Neither man would comment on their growths being snipped or nipped in the bud, so to speak, except to say they could have kept them if they had insisted. Bernie Perrant, whose handsome profile is hidden during the game by his goalie's mask, is keeping his lip hair. Gregory apparently spoke briefly with the individuals, then mentioned the mustaches again in a brief closed meeting on the team bus when it arrived at their hotel. Now, there's a more noticeable aspect of the team's new look, and that involves the uniforms which arrived last week. This is something the Leafs have done quite often over the years, is they would bring in new uniforms uh, for the playoffs. I remember the first time they had uh, the numbers on the arms, the first, and that was done in the playoffs, I think in the early to mid-60s. Now, new jerseys have arrived, and they've got V-necks outlined in white, which are otherwise identical to the laced-at-the-neck sweaters the Leafs used all season. Now, this is pretty interesting. Having players shave for the playoffs, nothing more diametrically opposed to that than what happens now 50 years later, where players begin their playoff beards weeks before the playoffs begin and they're in full bloom I guess you could say when the playoffs begin in 2022 so that's our show this week everyone what did we learn this time around well we learned the Leafs made the playoffs the Red Wings did not the Flyers did not, but the Penguins made the playoffs thanks to some great coaching by Red Kelly. He got the team going after he gave up the general manager's duties, and that was a great move by Red Kelly. Uh, we learned a bit about the WHA situation, getting a lot more clear this week. Chicago is, after all, going to have a team. Dayton is not. Houston will have a team and really they had been talked about as an alternate from the beginning but we didn't know of any teams that were that bad off Quebec Nordiques are the Nordiques they got a name this week but they did not get John Ferguson and we learned this week who the NHL's best dressed players are be sure to tune in next week when we begin our coverage of the 1972 Stanley Cup playoffs the 50 Years Ago on Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank Andy enough for everything he does, all his hard work on this. Keeps us going during some pretty tough times. Andy produces podcasts professionally. If you're thinking of starting one up, get hold of me. I'll put you in contact with Andy. He is truly one of the best in the business. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music. They're going on tour throughout the United States in May. The last half of May, they're going to be on both the East, the West Coast, and in the Midwest. And if they're playing near you take advantage and see a great show other sound effects in the podcast and music are created produced by andy cole as well our research comes from files for the toronto star the toronto globe and mail and of course the many publications found at newspapers.com 
one of our sponsors. Also, don't forget our other sponsor, the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in downtown Port Coburn, Ontario. And I would love to meet any of our listeners at the Breakwall if you're ever in the Niagara region. You can find us on the uh, every week here on the Hockey Podcast Network. We're on the Facebook page of 50 Years Ago in Hockey, our WordPress site, hockey50yearsago.com. You can get us also to your favorite podcast app. We hope to be back on Twitter at, at Hockey50Years very soon as well. Thanks again to everyone who tunes in our show. The playoffs are going to be really fun this year. We'll be with you all the way. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the-